Psalm 98, verses 7 through 9. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones, uh, first grade and under, they can go over for children's worship now, uh, if you so desire. Miss Brittany, they've left you. (laughs) Uh, So today uh, is kind of ish the conclusion of this four-week sermon series through Psalm 98, and we have some gifts for you. Mr. Warren, I'm glad you went back there. We should have a few journals left, I think, in that little wicker basket there. If you have not yet gotten one of these, I remembered it this week. Let's see your journals. You got your journals on you? Miss Amy does. Mr. James does. Well done. All right, all right. So if if you have not gotten one of these yet, raise your hand, and Warren is going to give you one. This is probably not your first Christmas gift yet. If you'd been here four Sundays ago, it would have been your first Christmas gift. So this is a songwriting journal that we are carrying with ourselves throughout the Advent season as I have challenged you to write a song. And so in week one of the sermon series, I gave you four principles to be participating in over the Advent series to inspire you in your song, but we're also keeping our sermon notes in here. If you left your journal at home, that's okay. We do have space on the back of your worship guide to take your notes. But if, uh, if you have this, go ahead and grab it and pull it out. And, and I want to thank you for your patience and cooperation in this month-long songwriting process. I know that for most of you, this was an unexpected invitation, and perhaps it was even kind of nerve-wracking for you, but I'm, I'm curious to know, I'm actually wanting feedback, um, as you've tried your hand at writing a song uh, in the last few weeks, what, uh, what surprises or joys have you experienced in the process? This is open forum. It's like a, it's like a town hall meeting. What's, what has surprised you or what's been particularly enjoyable about it? Has it been misery? It's difficult. Why has it been difficult, then? That's an excellent... So if you couldn't hear what Lynn was saying, she said, um, it's hard when you hear other people's songs that are written so beautifully. When I put it in my words, it just doesn't sound so beautiful. And uh, I, that's a struggle that I've had during this process, Lynn. But I think what, what I've had to realize is that God wants us to worship from where we are with our words and with our heart. And when, we're, when it's spoken in honesty and faith, that's beautiful to the ears of God. Uh, it's easy for us to kind of judge our own worship uh, by the standards of another. We're going to talk about singing today, and sometimes you'll hear another person singing, and their voice is so beautiful when we worship that you don't want to sing at all. God doesn't judge based upon that. He loves it when we worship him in our own words and with our own faith. And so, uh, so be encouraged. My song next week will not sound terribly uh, <laughs> ornate at all. So God, God wants our honesty. Something else that surprised you or that's been joyful for you or even difficult as you've been writing your song uh, during the season. Go ahead, Rose. So you're, you're, but you're an established songwriter, Rose. You've written before. In the past, did you start with words or did you start with music in the past? Yeah, that's... So, uh, that's a ch- y'all are picking the same difficulties I've had along the way. I've got a bunch of words 
uh, that are not really great together. <laughs> so I, I don't have a completed song yet. I've got little chunks and pieces, right? And um, what's interesting, though, is, like you said, you said you felt like the Spirit was giving this to you. There's something really honest and true about that. When, when you're just able to say, this is what I'm hearing, this is what I'm experiencing, and I think that's a legitimate act of, of worship. One more. Any other thoughts, any joys or surprises along the way? Meg? Yeah, and that was part of the... So what she said was, it's been hard to find the time because this is a season that's so busy, and yet it's the season when we should be meditating on these things. And I think that was the, the specific challenge I was trying to enter into with this sermon series because I didn't work on my song hardly at all this week because I was busy. I was buying gifts. I was wrapping gifts. I was going and doing stuff, you know? And so th- that was kind of a... And it's, intentional thing we were trying to target uh, by having us go through this process during Christmas to just have that opportunity in your pocket to disconnect for five minutes and just five minutes meditate on what the Lord has done. And and here's another hidden intention behind this sermon series. I'm hoping that some of you, as a result of this process, will take on singing and songwriting as a way of life. That this activity of songwriting has awakened a new perspective on singing and songwriting that will actually change your future practices and habits, that you, in the future, will write more songs to God, for God, about God, and that singing will become a a more regular part of your life. Think about it this way. What if you began to view yourself as a songwriter you identified yourself as a songwriter, and what if this one song you've been working on, or these fragments of songs in my case, what if this led to many more songs? What if singing became a more regular and intentional part of your relationship with Jesus? What if singing and songwriting became a way of life for you? You ever considered that? From a biblical perspective, Singing is an ordinary way of relating to God, but more than that, it is a normative way of relating to God. Kids, we've only got a few in here this morning, so I might have to really rely on you guys. Kids, what do we call talking to God? What's the word for that? When you talk to God, you are... What's that, Mike? Praying. That is, it wasn't a trick question. That, that is right. Praying is talking to God. Should every Christian pray, kids? Yeah, of course. Uh, That's what relationships consist of. That's how we develop our relationship with God. If we never talk to our friends, are they really our friends? Not really. We have to communicate with them in some way. We have to relate to them. That's the whole idea of a relationship. But here's the point that I want to make. In the same way that God commands us to pray, he also commands us to sing. Singing to God, singing about God, singing for God is not an optional part of being a Christian. Singing is not something for the especially gifted people. It's not for the specially called people. God commands us all to sing. And it's not just ordinary, it's normative. It's a command for all of us to sing to God and for God. Now, is songwriting commanded for everybody? No. No, it's not. Uh, But that doesn't make it strange. 
writing songs for God is also ordinary, normal, and good. It's not special. It's, it's, it's ordinary to write songs for God. If you're taking notes, grab your journal or your worship guide. Here's your first one to write down. I've got to find my, my first blank sheet. Number one, singing and songwriting for God. Singing and songwriting for God are ordinary Christian activities. Singing and songwriting for God are ordinary Christian activities. As new or different or strange as this process might have seemed to you of writing a song, it's not. It's not new or different or strange. Singing and songwriting are pretty normal things for Christians to do from a biblical perspective. I mean, the Bible commands us to praise God with singing, not only in the context of community worship of what we're doing right now, we're also commanded to worship God with singing in our personal lives. Let's go back to our text, Psalm 98. We'll read verses 7 through the beginning of verse 9. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh. So the psalmist commands every one of us, if there is breath in our lungs, he tells us to sing. So let me ask you a question, you who inhabit the world. How's your singing? We'll, we'll, we'll start communally and we'll work to the individual. When we sing together as a community, how's your singing? To harken back to a sermon I preached in August, I told you then that we worship God well when we sing with three things, with volume, with joy, and with gratitude. While there is a place for silently reflecting while other people sing, that's the exception rather than the norm. What am I getting at? To begin, I want every one of you, myself included, to take inventory of your singing in worship. When we sing as a group, I don't feel the vigor and joy of Psalm 98 in our collective voice. Actually, this morning, y'all kind of surprised me a little bit. I heard maybe some Christmas songs we hadn't heard in a while. There was a little more volume and joy and excitement in our singing. But as a general rule, the vigor and joy of Psalm 98, I don't, I don't get it out of our communal singing. And the point here is not for you to feel guilty about not singing loud and therefore act differently. The point is actually to go back to the root issue. Why does our singing not burst forth with volume and joy and gratitude? Where does that kind of singing come from? Go back to verse 1, chapter 98. He says, O sing to Yahweh a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. If in community worship, our singing lacks the volume, joy, and gratitude that God commands, it reveals a failure to see God as he is. We've missed it. This is burning. 
I knew it was going to happen. Did you all smell it yet? Hey, you, you want to know a secret, kids? God doesn't command you to light candles in church. We don't have to do it. And so if the choice is the church burning down or burning candles, I'm just going to put out the candles. <laughs> We're going to smell burned plastic for the rest of the morning, maybe for the rest of the week. That'll be incense, yes, a sweet, sweet smell. Um, where was I? Yes, so if, if community worship, if our singing lacks the volume, joy, and gratitude that God commands, it reveals a failure to see God as he is. He has revealed himself to us in marvelous works of salvation. He has shown us his steadfast love and faithfulness, things that if we see them rightly, spark in us joy, gratitude, and song. So when you look at your singing in community worship, and if it feels anemic or quiet or without conviction or emotion, ask the question of why. What is that symptom in your singing revealing about your heart, about your attention, about your affection? Perhaps it shows a misunderstanding of what worship, what we're doing even is. Because the answer is not just sing louder, feel differently, do what the preacher says. The solution to unenthusiastic humdrum singing is to direct your eyes to Yahweh, to see him, to reflect on his works, to meditate on who he is and what he has done both now and all the time. This time, this space, what we're doing right now, the whole point of this is for you to come, to close yourself off from every other affection, every other attention, and to focus your heart and mind solely on him. See him, know him, trust him, commit to him, and sing in a way informed by that interaction with him. Singing together is not just an ordinary Christian practice. It's normative. We're commanded to do it. So examine the way you sing in community worship. But let's take it more individually. What is your singing life like in your household? Do you and your family or your housemates ever praise God together. After all, we consider the household a subset of the church. Your home is to be a place where God's praise is declared not only on the Sabbath, but every day of the week, that Deuteronomy 6 principle. And singing to God together as a household is a great way to do that. And for what it's worth, it's like really easy to do that at Christmas, right? Sing these songs of praise. I know tons of parents who struggle to figure out how to disciple their children. What should I say? What should I teach? They get bored. It sounds like a lesson to them. So sing. Between the historic hymns of the church and modern hymn writers like Sandra McCracken and Sovereign Grace Music, there are a plethora of Christian options for Christian families to sing together. The two, I'll, I'll recommend two, of, two for you if you have kids or grandkids. One, for Advent, Rain for Roots album, Waiting songs is awesome. We listen to it on the way to church this morning. And another one that's good for the whole year round, Sovereign Grace Music, put this one together. It's called, it's the word theology with a space in the middle of it. Theology. And what's great about both of these albums is the music's not horrible. <laughs> a lot of kids' music is just terrible stuff. I actually really enjoy it. And the, the content is just so good. So that gives you space, with kids in particular, to disciple them in the ways of the Lord. Sing with them. And, and you can do that if you just have adults in your house too. Sing together. 
But what about individually? Do you ever sing to God when you're alone with him? Maybe when you're driving around town. I I find myself singing to God most often when I'm walking around the house or the office, whistling or or singing or, or humming. I drive Chris and Brittany and the rest of them all crazy. But make songs to God a regular part of your repertoire. As you are moved by him, praise him. Sing to God. Now, I would imagine as you've been going through this songwriting process during Advent that you've sung uh, maybe more or at least differently. So what is your singing life like now? And is it possible that God wants you to sing differently in the future? Is it possible that through this Advent season, God wants to forever change how you sing in worship, in your household, or on your own? Consider this for yourself as an individual. How does God want you particularly to sing? Have you ever asked him that? Have you ever sought his wisdom on it? He commands you to sing. So, here's the next thing to write in your journal. Ask God how he wants me to change my singing life. I'll say that slower. Ask God how he wants me Ask God how he wants me to change my singing life. Ask God how he wants me to change my singing life. That would be a productive prayer to be praying. Because singing is not just an ordinary Christian activity. It's commanded by God for all of us. So how should your singing life be changed into alignment with the commands and purposes of God? Now, songwriting, I'll talk about that for a second, is not commanded for all followers of Christ. But if you have the gift as a songwriter, God expects you to use it. And if you're interested, maybe you don't know if you're gifted as a songwriter, you've enjoyed this process, keep on. There's no biblical reason to not try songwriting, right? The Bible doesn't say we have to have candles. The Bible doesn't say you have to do, write songs. But if you enjoy it, give it a shot. So consider this. You who have dabbled in songwriting during this season... What might your future songwriting life look like? Could God be calling you into a new practice of writing songs to him, about him, for him? How could you not only bless his name, but also bless the church with your gift of songwriting? While singing is commanded to all Christians, songwriting is still an ordinary Christian activity that is available for you to try. But as we're thinking about your future singing and songwriting, uh, I want to make an imperative that's very clear to me in this text. And you can write this down. We should sing in the second coming. We should sing in the second coming. We should sing in the second coming. I heard somebody out there whisper, whisper echoing me. I know without the blanks it takes a little bit longer. We should sing in the second coming. And fear not, blanks are coming back. I'm not going to make you write the whole thing for the rest of your lives. Our mode of life between this moment and the second coming, our way of living between now and then should be a lifestyle of singing and perhaps writing even more songs to sing. We should sing in the second coming. When Jesus returns, how cool would it be if he caught us singing to his glory? And that's the real force of the last three verses of our psalm. 
So let's go back to verse 7, and we're actually going to finish verse 9, finally. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalmist is very explicit. He says, everything on earth, every living thing, every non-living thing, every sentient thing, every non-sentient thing, all creation roar and clap and sing together for Yahweh. Why? Because he's coming to judge the earth. He commands us to sing expectantly, longingly, hopefully, to sing in light of the fact that soon he is coming to judge the earth. Like pagan idolaters waiting for the sun to rise, looking into the dark, looking at the horizon, singing and waiting for its light. So we look to the horizon of eternity, singing, longing, and waiting for judgment. And that's actually a really great way to think about Jesus' eventual return. Very biblical way to think about it. Write this down. Jesus' first advent brought peace. Jesus' first advent brought peace. But his second advent, Jesus' first advent brought peace, but his second advent will bring judgment. His first advent brought peace, but his second advent will bring judgment. When Jesus was born... In a stable, the angels sang peace on earth. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, I judge no one. That was not the purpose of his first coming. Jesus came to die. He came to be a substitutionary atonement for those who would believe the gospel. He came to bring peace. But when he returns, his purpose will be judgment. Consider this. Why is creation as we talked about last week, in such turmoil? Why is society in such turmoil? It's because of sin. And when Jesus returns, he will judge those violators, oppressors, and sinners who have wreaked havoc in this world. Every sinner who has not found peace through Christ's first advent will on that day be judged at the point of Jesus' sword. And he will establish his total reign over creation and society forever. His kingdom will come. His will be be completely done on earth as it is in heaven. Look again at verse 9. It says, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He will bring complete and total justice to this earth. This earth will be purged of all sin and all opposition to the Lordship of Christ. That's the second coming that we should sing in. But why would, why would future judgment make us sing? I mean, sure, yeah, we sing about you know, Him coming back and ruling and making all things right, but the destruction of those who do not bow to Him, why is that worthy of song? Write this down. Whoops. The future judging work of Jesus 
the future judging work of Jesus is worthy of reflection and song. The future judging work of Jesus is worthy of reflection and song. And write this part down too. But why? Why is the future judging work of Jesus worthy of reflection and song? Because isn't judgment like a really dark and gloomy thing to be thinking about? Isn't that the thing of nightmares, not the thing of joy? Here's my first answer to that question. You can write this down as well. Why? Number one, because for God's oppressed and persecuted people, because for God's oppressed and persecuted people, for God's persecuted and oppressed of people that day will mean vindication. That day will mean vindication for God's oppressed and persecuted people. I'm sure you guys remember, some of you, um, Andrew Brunson, who was uh, a missionary from our denomination, who sat in a Turkish prison for two years under false charges of conspiracy because he was preaching the gospel. We prayed for this guy every Sunday for two years until he was let go. But when he was let go, when he was set free, that meant vindication. What does that word vindication mean? It means being declared in the right. Andrew Brunson was declared he did not break the law, and you're not crazy, Andrew. (laughs) You were being treated unjustly. Now you're being set free. He was being declared in the right. I want you to think of all the people on this planet right now who hope in God, who pray to God, and yet their prayers seem to have no effect Their sickness continues. Their abusive relationship continues. They can't seem to get out of the situation they're in. Perhaps they are even being seriously persecuted for their faith. When Jesus judges sinners one day, His poor, oppressed, persecuted people will finally have their prayers answered and they will be set free. You remember how the book of Exodus begins? Israel, God's people, are unjustly enslaved by Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Exodus 2, verses 23 and following says this, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew And how did God respond to their prayers of groaning? With marvelous works, which we see in verse 1. Great miracles of salvation and judgment. Judgment and salvation are always a package deal. By judging some, he saves others. When God judges one man, he tells another one, I heard your prayers. I've responded by judging this one and setting you free. So Pharaoh is destroyed And Israel is set free. Babylon falls and Israel goes home. Jesus is crucified. And we are forgiven. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the children of God. This reality 
that God hears his children's cries as they wilt under persecution, oppression, and sin, and pain, and sickness, all these things, he responds to our prayers with judgment. This good news of judgment should cause us to sing. Hold your finger in Psalm 95 and turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Please turn there. Very good to read your Bible as the pastor reads it. Make sure he's not lying to you. This is the truth. Exodus 15. When God set Israel free from Egypt, what was the grand climax but the crossing of the Red Sea? God's people escaped while Pharaoh and his army were drowned. This remarkable moment of judgment. How did Moses and the people of Israel respond as Pharaoh and his army's bodies were floating in the Red Sea? They sang a song. Let's read it. Read along as I read it for you. Verses 1 through 18 in Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become what? My salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Yahweh, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode... The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. So when Moses and all Israel see God's judgment in action, what do they do? They sing. So we should sing in the second coming. As we look forward to that day when all things will be made right, when all God's people will be vindicated and declared in the right, when the enemies of God who have oppressed God's people, are destroyed. We should be looking forward to that day. And that day should cause us to sing. 
The future judging work of Jesus is worthy of our reflection and song because that day will mean vindication for all of God's people who are begging for release, who are begging to be set free, who are persecuted and oppressed unjustly. So we sing. But here's a second reason why that day is worthy of our reflection and song. Here's another thing to write down in your journal. Because on that day, because on that day, we will return to something. Because on that day, we will return to something better than Eden. On that day, we will return to something better than Eden. Listen as I read these three verses again and see if you can't see a beautiful unity of praise, not just among people, but among the whole creation, as though creation is being united once more in worship, back in Psalm 98, 7 through 9. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Singing together as a whole created order. You've no doubt all heard of The Lord of the Rings before, the epic uh, fantasy trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. It was set in a beautiful world called, uh, a, a, a fictional world called Middle-earth. Um, after Tolkien's death, another work uh, of his was released called The Silmarillion. Have you all ever read The Silmarillion? I didn't get through the whole thing. I bailed about halfway through. It's pretty heavy stuff. So The Silmarillion is functionally a, a legend that kind of tells the ancient past of Middle-earth, beginning with a fictional creation story. Now, Tolkien was a, was a devout, orthodox, even evangelizing Roman Catholic. He was key to C.S. Lewis coming to saving faith. But in his retelling of creation, he describes God's act of creation as a song. God is singing a song, and through his song, Middle Earth comes to be. But as God's song is going forth, creating the world, a dark angel begins to sing a different song one which weaves into God's beautiful song and distorts it, introducing discord, turbulence, and darkness into God's beautiful creation song. And in that, I see Tolkien grappling with a difficult question, one which I don't think any of us has a really solid, clear answer to. But when God created the world for good, when he made this world for the purpose of his praise and our blessing then why is the tree of knowledge placed in the garden? Why is the snake allowed into the garden? How did Satan fall from his status in the ranks of heaven to become our great opposer? Why was the door left open that we might fall? Eden was beautiful, but it was incomplete. So consider now what it will be like when the world is better than Eden. When the sea and all that is in it, when the world and all its inhabitants, when we all sing for joy, when God's creation song will ring out without the discord and turbulence and darkness because sin is gone, never again to return. The pain of this life will never be revisited because through Jesus' death and through the day of judgment, 
He has excised the cancer of sin from our world. As you reflect on that wonderful day of judgment, when sin will be eradicated and the world will be better than Eden, that expectation for that day should cause us to sing. Sing songs of praise for the God who saves. Songs of surrender to the one who will come to reign. And songs of evangelism to tell the whole world that they need not be judged. Christ was judged on the cross. And for all who believe in him, they can be freed from judgment. And on that day, find salvation, vindication, and all things made right. We should sing in the second coming. We should look forward to that day and respond with praise, surrender, and evangelistic fervor. fervor. And I hope you have been reflecting on what that day will be like as you've written your song, because that day is a cause for song. You know, in Advent, we stir up our expectations for the second coming so that we would live that way the whole year round. Like the second coming is not just our hope for four weeks out of the year. This should be our song and our hope and our expectation the whole year round. We should always be singing in the second coming. Here's a final thing to write in your journal besides whatever's left of your song. It's just a question. Are you living your life in light of the second coming? Are you living your life in light of the second coming? If we live our life like this is all there is, that this life is all we've got, what does that mindset lead to? First of all, it leads to sin, but also remarkable dissatisfaction and weariness. If this is the life you have to live, and you're trying to make this as great as it can be, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because we start thinking, I've got to make this life as good as possible for me and for the, the ones that I love. It is fiction. We treat Christmas Day the same way. If we don't get that day right, if the gifts we give and if our celebration and if our our friends and our children's experience isn't perfect, then it's all ruined. That's ridiculous. If we were to live every day, every moment of our life, in light of eternity, in light of the second coming, thinking about that day, how much of our lives would change? How much of our internal life would change? How, How many of our choices would be different? That day is the day when we'll be vindicated. That day is the day in which we will be truly satisfied, all of our longings satisfied. That day is the day when everything will be at peace, when every relationship will return to harmony rather than broken discord. And as we fix our eyes and our hopes on that day, we will live differently. We will sing differently. Are you living your life in light of the second coming? We should be singing it in. So be reflecting on that day as you write your songs in these last days of Advent. But more importantly than your song, keep your eyes on that day as you live your life, Christian. As we should sing in the second coming, it should be, uh, our, our whole life should be aimed at that day. Our whole life 
should be lived in light of the second coming. Thanks again for your uh, endurance of this process. Uh, we did, uh, I did announce last Sunday that next week's service is going to be very, very different. Um, we're going to be, our whole service is going to be revolving around song. My sermon's actually going to be split up into little sermonettes throughout the service, and we're going to be giving you the opportunity to share your song if you want. You can read it to us. You can sing it for us. Uh, we, we really would love to hear it in your voice. Um, if, if you're just too petrified and you want Chris or I to read it, we're happy to do that, but we'd rather hear you. Uh, we we want to spur each other on toward good works and toward worship. And if you would like to do that, please let Chris know today. Uh, we've got to get our plans together for next Sunday, and there's Christmas Eve too. So stop Chris and say, hey, I want to sing my song next Sunday, or, or I want to read my song next Sunday. We have some kids that are going to be doing their songs as well, so this is an all-ages sort of thing. And so we encourage you as you're, you're wrapping up. I, I'm going to try. I hope my song will be done. I'll sing whatever's done for you next week. Uh, but uh, it'll be a great week next week to worship the Lord, to enjoy uh, his first coming, and to look forward to his second coming as well. Let us pray. God, thanks for my friends, my brothers and sisters here today. Thank you for this process during Advent. And as they're putting finishing touches on their songs, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage them, that they would enjoy the process, and that they would worship. Really, Lord, that's what we want, is for our hearts to be set on you, on your character, on your deeds, past, present, and future. And that from our reflection on you, we would burst forth with song, with worship, with a Affection, with faith. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that in us in these last days, and as we get closer to Christmas Day, help us, Lord, to be more and more taken with love for Christ. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.